Hey friends, I'm Stuart Sutherland, co-founder of Heritage Missional Community. We are a growing network of microchurches centered around a coffee house and coffee roasting business in Shasta Lake, California. If you've ever thought there has to be more to this journey of following Jesus, then this is the right place for you. Thanks for joining me in a casual conversation about reclaiming authentic discipleship. Fill up your coffee cup, settle in, and here we go. Hey, I want to welcome you to our first podcast for Heritage Missional Community. And who we are, what we do is we serve the city of Shasta Lake as we would call a new expression of church. This doesn't mean we're reinventing much of anything, but what we're doing is we use coffee, a coffee house, as a vehicle for relationship with people. And it's through this amazing cup of coffee that we have the opportunity to just have the life-on-life experiences with people that are just part of our normal routine. When I think about Jesus walking with his disciples he invited his disciples into a relationship. He invited them to, to just travel with him, to, to minister with him. He would breathe the Holy Spirit on him and send him out to heal the sick and cast out demons. And then we get to Matthew 28, where Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, and he commands his disciples to make disciples. He doesn't command them to make converts. He doesn't command them to create a really great program. He doesn't tell them to start a school. He says, make disciples. And disciples are learners of Jesus. And just as the disciples got to experience that life on life with Jesus, Jesus's command was to go and do the same with others. And so we want to get back to that. We want to get back to reclaiming authentic discipleship. How do we be disciples? How do we don't, you know, how do we escape this idea that we can just create disciples by taking them through a program? Now, there are definitely people in our lives that we do life with that are discipling us, and that may have a beginning and an end point. But the programmatic part, the part that has an expectation on by the end of these, you know, this period of time, you have these outcomes, those are good to a certain degree, but the organic nature, the authenticity, the, the, the realness of relationship, see, it's, it's about getting into not just a head knowledge of who Jesus is, but it's getting into the heart knowledge, the knowledge of who Jesus is in the same way that I have a relationship with a close friend, a relative, a spouse, that deep, intimate knowledge and life-on-life experience. Experience becomes hugely important in that journey. And so we want to find how do we, I guess the big question is, in our pursuit, is how do we do that? How do we create authentic discipleship? How do we, how do we, it's, it's something we get to reclaim because it's something that's available. It's something we get to have. It's something that we see in the Bible. It's something that we see in the early church. And it's even something that we see in some expressions of church in now. But how do we make that more of the normal and less of the exception? And so that's what we're after as a community. So I just want to welcome you to, again, our first podcast. I'm excited for this. Um, I've always wanted to share what we were doing, but believe it or not, I'm a little bit shy. In fact, I grew up 
uh, when I grew up, I was kind of a quiet kid. And in fact, this episode is titled The Quiet Kid, which is about my growing up. And I just wanted to share a little bit about um, myself with you in, my, in hopes that it's inspiring to you that, you know, you, I'm just this guy. I'm just an ordinary person. There's nothing special about me. In fact, I remember growing up, I grew up in the Nazarene church. And in fact, my grandfather, um, his parents, so my great grandparents were missionaries in China. And so um, I always kind of saw missionaries as these heroes, superheroes of the faith, extraordinary people. In fact, when a missionary would come visit us at church, you know, they would come with all sorts of cool stuff. Usually it was the missionary from Africa who would bring all of these really cool like baskets and bows and staffs and cool things that just felt so archaic and old and mysterious. It just felt like these ancient cultures were coming to life. And it seemed like the missionary that brought these amazing things was this adventurer. They were like Indiana Jones who would go out into the wild to where no no man has gone before from, you know, an industrialized nation. And they went into the deep of the jungle. And when they stumbled across this lost city or these lost people, and then they shared the gospel with them. And it was just big and epic and terrifying. Honestly, it was just terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying. In fact, um, when I was growing up, I always saw my friends. They knew exactly what they wanted to be. Some wanted to be, you know, firefighters and others wanted to be engineers. And they all had a a direction. They always knew like, oh, I I know what I want to be when I grow up. And this is what I'm going to be. And I'm going to take these classes and I'm going to read these books. I'm going to do these things. And I always thought, man, I I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, I think the best thing I knew what I wanted to be was, uh, I think I want to be a dad. I think I want to have a family. Um, I think, you know, I guess I just want to do what, what God wants me to do. But really, I didn't have dreams or aspirations of really big things. I just felt like I'm an ordinary person and I just, I want an ordinary life. I didn't want anything extraordinary or special. And so... Um, that's really kind of my beginning. Um, I grew up in, I was born in Sacramento, California. And like I said, part of a Nazarene church, grandparents, missionaries, my great grandparents were missionaries to China. My grandfather was actually born in China. They fled from there um, during World War II, when World War II broke out. And then um, even on my mom's side, my my grandmother was an Armenian refugee um, during the Armenian Holocaust that happened when uh, the Turks were killing off Armenians, uh, Christian Armenians. And in fact, my grandmother, her sibs, and her folks made it through Ellis Island in New York. And when they arrived, they found out that the rest of their family was wiped out. And so um, having kind of this context in my life kind of understanding maybe a little bit more about the world and how the world was definitely a bigger place, I think maybe even played into why when I prayed the prayer, Lord, what would you want me to do? And I thought, man, the last thing I want to do is be a missionary. The last thing I want to do is go into those crazy places. Um, But ultimately, my interests and hobbies were really 
Um, I loved building things. In fact, when I was really little, my, my folks would give me things to take apart. I think I remember one of my favorite gifts was uh, an aeronautical kit. Um, what is that? It's a, it's a kit that lets you build airplane, anything that flies. Um, so it was like airplanes that were rubber band powered or airplanes that you would just throw. It was uh, model rockets, um, things like that, stuff with parachutes. I mean, all sorts of fun things like that. In fact, I wasn't really the kid that loved playing video games. In fact, we didn't have the, nin- the Nintendo or the Atari, which would have been what I would have growing up. Most of you probably don't even know what that is, but it was not really a thing for me. Um, video games were not really the most um, exciting thing for me. I was hands-on. I wanted to figure out how things worked. I wanted to create new things. Um, I totally remember uh, my brother and I, my, my, we were living in this house that had just a bunch of scrap wood on, on the side yard. And what we would do is we had these scraps of lumber. We had this old skateboard and we built a drag racer out of it. We lived in, um, at this point we were living in LA and, uh, we had, our house had this big hill next to it. It was, you know, a road, steep road. And my brother and I are like, we need to create this super cool downhill dragster. So we made this long looking funny car thing. If you know what funny cars are from drag racing. And we put the skate wheels up front, skate wheels in the back. I think we made a break. I don't think it worked very well, but that's what we love doing. We love building stuff with sticks. I mean, we literally would run through the neighborhood and this is a pretty nice neighborhood with landscape and things like that, but we would always kind of make ourselves at home in other people's yards. I don't know how good that was, but <laughs> that's what we did. In fact, we would build uh, little tunnels through people's bushes and, uh, and, and play hide-and-go-seek and all sorts of stuff. And then when we got walkie-talkies, it was like, you know, another level of cool but I just remember those things because it was always about imagination. It was always about creativity. And so that's really kind of how I was wired. It was how, what made me come to life and what excited me. But I still didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. I never really dreamt about, you know, maybe it was being a firefighter for a few minutes. Maybe it was being a superhero. Maybe it was being this epic um, mountaineer who would climb Mount Everest Um, I don't really, didn't, nothing really stuck. And um, I remember kind of that changing a little bit when I started going to church camp. Um, I started going to church camp at a really young age. I think I was probably about six or eight. But it was right around that time that um, I was at a church camp in L.A. and uh, the the counselor was sharing a story, kind of a, uh, an abridged version of what Jesus did for us. And I remember it really striking my heart, like, okay, this is, this is something I need to own. I need to, I need to give my life to Jesus. And so it was kind of in that, in that camp experience that I gave my life to Jesus, at least in a, as, a, as a, I was in, I was going to commit to that. I believe this was a real thing. It wasn't just um, something that I heard, but it wasn't really until another experience going to camp when I was probably just about, um, going into junior high 
that uh, a pastor was sharing at another church camp experience, and I got hit with this call to be um, to be in ministry. Um, I thought it was just to be a pastor, you know, because in my context, it was, well, if you're in ministry, you're a missionary or you're a pastor, and that's it. And so um, I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, because if you remember earlier in the story here, being a missionary was no-go. So I was definitely going to be a pastor. That's, that's safe. So as I came back from that church camp, I actually got in front of our congregation. They had us, um, all these kids um, from camp, and this was back in Sacramento. We, had, we lived in, I was born in Sacramento. We moved to LA for a stint, and then we moved back to Sacramento. My dad worked in construction. It was the 80s and 90s, super volatile market. And so it was kind of go where the go where the work is. And so we were back in Sacramento, in downtown Sacramento, and it was actually um, our home church, my folks' home church. My grandparents went there. And so um, they after camp, they called all the kids up to share like what what their experience was. And I remember my my sharing was like, well, I just feel like God's called me to to be in ministry, to to do something. And everybody thought, oh my gosh, this is so amazing, you know, and they were, people were probably more excited to me. I was probably mostly confused going, what did I, why, what does this mean? Like, I don't know. And to be honest with you, as time went on, that, that feeling, that call kind of faded. And so, um, this really was something that kind of went dormant and, Right around, I've got a date for you. I mean, just to maybe share with you how old or young I am, depending on where you are. But (laughs) it was right around 1992. Um, Things, some some interest started to percolate in me. And I was in elementary school, in the elementary school band, playing the clarinet. Now, my dad had this clarinet, and it was kind of a hand-me-down clarinet. So I thought, well... I guess I'll play the clarinet too. I had uh, elementary school bands, and since I had the clarinet, they let me play clarinet. And I started thinking, man, the clarinet's great, but who do I have to look up to? Like, you know, you have guitar players, and you have all these cool rock stars, and you can look up to them, and they're super cool people. I mean, even, um, you know, our church was more of a choir and organ church, so it wasn't like I was looking up to the front going, okay, there's a cool dude playing guitar because that really was not a thing for me. But I looked at the clarinet and thought, who do I have to look up to? I have Benny Goodman. Um, I have, you know, big band music, some jazz. Okay, I don't know. This isn't a very cool instrument. So I kind of got bored with the clarinet, but... Um, Having the last name Sutherland is a very Scottish surname, and my dad was way interested in our family lineage. And so we went to a Scottish Games. Yeah, the Scottish Games, the place where they throw the big telephone poles, where they throw big rocks, and where they have a very interesting instrument called the bagpipes. So I see this band playing bagpipes. They have snare drums, bass drum, bagpipes. And I thought to myself, that's a pretty cool instrument. I think I want to play that instrument. In fact, my dad actually bought this little starter kit on how to learn the bagpipes in uh, at the Scottish Games. And as 
he brought that home. He had it in his room. I kind of like snuck it out and started practicing. And he took notice of that and actually signed me up for some lessons. And so one of my first big interests was actually music and bagpipes. And um, I learned so quickly on the bagpipes. I earned a scholarship, which paid for more uh, lessons. And as I got more lessons, I went from learning the bagpipes to actually competing in bagpipe competitions, um, both in solo competitions and in band competitions. And in fact, the bagpipe competitions are graded. And some of you might be laughing right now because you're like, seriously, they have bagpipe competitions? Yes, they do. It's like a whole world of people. Um, and uh, the grades of competitive bagpiping are in, uh, they're numbered one, two, three, four. One is the highest grade, four is the lowest. So you start, I started competing in grade four and it wasn't too long that I started competing in grade three. I was practicing hours a day. I was super dedicated. We would compete on weekends. We'd travel all over the state and sometimes we would travel to other places in the nation and um, bagpipes were really kind of the, the thing that I really put my heart into and went all in for in the beginning. And um, so here I was, 11 years old, moving on to 12 years old, and just digging bagpipes and digging that culture. And was it the best culture? Probably not the best culture, but uh, it was fun. And so... In that time of my life, about a year after I started Bagpipes, uh, the next really significant thing that took place in my, in my life, if you remember, I was sharing how I just didn't have, I had that call to ministry, but it, it, it just kind of faded. It just didn't really stick. And I know some of you probably experienced something similar to that. And so I put my effort in something else. I put my effort in bagpipes. It was all about bagpipes. But then this next encounter, this next moment in my life became really pivotal. And I was about 12 years old. I was sitting in my room. Actually, I was laying in my bed in my room asleep. And it was probably 2 or 3 a.m. And the Lord woke me up. And when the Lord woke me up, I sat straight up in my bed and I could just feel the presence of the Lord in ways that I couldn't explain. I still can't explain. It was, you know, some people say waves of liquid love. Some people just say, you know, just weighted with the glory of God. Whatever you want to call it, it was there. It was, it was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in a way that I, in fact, didn't have language for. All I could do was praise the Lord. I was just praising the Lord, praising the Lord. I don't know how long it went on. It went on a long time, but this moment was so significant for one reason being I didn't know about the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was not really taught in our, in our church experience. And so we were, you know, we would talk about the Holy Ghost but we wouldn't really talk about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't talk about those things while it was in the Bible. I was familiar. I couldn't tell you what the heck just happened to me that night. And so honestly, I didn't have opportunity to even share it with people because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if anybody else would understand what it was, but I knew it was good and I knew it was powerful. And in that moment, God became so real to me, so ridiculously real to me that nothing else mattered. And so 
it just, it, it changed everything for me. It changed the fact that I, I remember that calling that the Lord had on me. I remembered that God is with me. I started really getting into some regular devotion time and some quiet time with the Lord. It was really powerful. It was really awesome. And so I guess this would be the, the moment where you think, man, everything's going good. Everything's going right. God's, you know, taking little stew and he's just like, making him uh, his son. He's molding him. He's, he's wooing him. And that's true. That was totally happening. But it was also because the next season was going to be rough. And that was a season where, um, yeah, my mom and dad split up. Uh, my dad being in construction and, um, yeah, it just being a hard time. My dad just thought it would be easier if he if he wasn't in relationship with my mom. And with that decision, we were already um, financially struggling. We went from living in a nice middle-class home to living in an apartment. And it was rough. Um, It was betrayal. It was um, probably one of the hardest things I remember of my growing up was just sitting in that living room while, you know, hearing my dad explain how he was, he didn't have feelings for my mom anymore and he needed to move on. And so this created a, a, a really hard, hard time for me, um, being part of the, the bagpipe scene and, and traveling, not being with mom and dad and being away turned into drinking for me. It turned into partying and I was young, you know, here I was, uh, probably 12, 13 years old, um, learning what kind of scotch is good scotch, learning what kind of beer that I liked, and drinking to excess, drinking um, when we won a competition, drinking when we lost a competition. Um, really, my rebellion kind of began and ended there. And after, after a season of that, after a season of anger, after a season of, of drinking, of um, really just not being home, not being present, looking for every opportunity just to get out, um, the Lord just had a tug on my heart. The Lord just continually wooed me and, and pointed me back to what, I, what was most important. What was most important was not rebelling. It wasn't, it was not staying angry with, um, with my dad or with my circumstances. And, um, it really pulled me back to, to the, to the church, to, to people. And I remember connecting with a, with a youth group leader and he took me under his wing and, you know, we'd stay up until 2 AM while he was typing up lessons for youth group and, um, we would we would just hang out, and I didn't have to be anything but just there. It wasn't any kind of pressure to to be somebody I wasn't. I just belonged in a place that felt safe, and he invited me to minister with him. In fact, um, it was in this season where some really uh, this is a story that's really formative for me in in seeing something that I didn't like in the church. And the story was this, um, while I was working with this youth pastor, we were in downtown Sacramento and, um, we decided to do outreach to the kids who lived in the neighborhood, which 
believe it or not, was something that was not happening in this church. And so we thought, well, this isn't happening. We need to do this. we need to do that. We started reaching out and connected with these twin uh, twin boys, Terry and Jerry. And um, Terry and Jerry were um, super rambunctious, lived with grandma. Uh, mom and dad weren't in the scene, but my youth pastor figured out these two guys are brilliant. They were super smart, and but they would always act up in school. They were always in detention. They were always, you know, in trouble of one kind or another. But we just started doing life with them. We just loved on them and invested in them, and our whole youth group did. And, and um, we started inviting them into church. They started, they started attending church. And um, in, that, in that time, they were still rambunctious. And so I, I remember them running down a hall one day, and they were like slapping these signs that were kind of mounted high up on the wall, and one of the signs broke off. And this happened right in front of one of the elders, or uh, yeah, one of the elders of the church. And that elder lost it. I mean, lost it. It was most important that that sign was broken. It wasn't important that these kids were just rambunctious and, you know, never grew up with parents uh, who invested in them or maybe helped them navigate what would be a good thing to do and what would be a not so good thing to do. And so I'm watching this whole thing take place. And then I see this elder take it, take it not just that far, but take it even beyond that to where I hear back that now the, now the, now the elder board doesn't want, they don't want to bring in these kids who are creating trouble in the church, who are destroying property. And I'm thinking to myself, what are we? Like, who are we? Why are we? And I remember my youth pastor saying, yeah, um, he, he took heat for that. And they, they actually told him we couldn't bring them back into the church. And I'm like, I grew up in the church. I know about Jesus. I know this stuff. And I know that what this, what's happening right now is completely unjust, completely wrong. And so I remember that moment so clearly because it, I made up my mind in that moment that, well, for one thing, I recognized politics in the church really are terrible. It sucks. But I also realized we're not open to new people, and that's why we don't see new people. We're not open to the broken. We're only open to the people who appear to be okay. And so now we're creating a culture of hypocrisy because... I know most of those people were pretending anyway because I saw them outside of church and they weren't the same person that they were in the church. And so I wrestled with that. I wrestled with the hypocrisy. I wrestled with the lack of grace and the lack of really openness or even what we would now call mission, like a mission-mindedness towards the lost. And so I continued with youth group and uh, fought with my friends, my, uh, my youth leader for the lost kids in downtown Sacramento. A couple of years after that, I, uh, attended, see, this is, there's a camp theme here. The Lord kept taking me back to church, uh, the church and camps and things like that. It seemed to be where I encountered the Lord the most, but, uh, all the way back, you ready to 1995, I attended a sailing camp and, uh, 
we sailed in the San Francisco Bay. How was this a church camp? I honestly can't tell you. We stayed on Angel Island and we walked Pier 39. I think one year we did a service project um, to one of the missions. Um, I, th- I think it was even a halfway house or something. And, um, but that's really all we did. But um, it was in sailing camp that uh, I like, I grew up sailing. My folks had a, uh, a boat in the bay um, and we would weekend sailing. I was pretty young. I don't remember a lot of it, um, but I remember that I did enjoy sailing. And so to have this opportunity to do sailing camp was amazing. And so um, at this point, I had gone from getting that early, early calling of, okay, I'm going to be in ministry to kind of letting that feeling fade to then being really interested in bagpipes and bagpipes were really kind of the thing I was all in about, which then came a Holy Spirit encounter that really recentered and rekindled a fire in me. And then after that, it was mom and dad splitting up. And by the way, they did reconcile. And it was a journey for me, but they reconciled. And um, in that reconciliation process, it was right before the reconciliation of my folks that I went to sailing camp. And an amazing thing happened to me. I, uh, I, I met a girl. And she was super cute. So now I'm going to tell you a really embarrassing story, and it's a story of how I met this really cute girl named Sarah. We were sitting on the bow of the boat. We had just loaded up. We were getting ready to cast off, and we were headed towards Angel Island. And so I thought, okay, keep it cool, man. You've got to make conversation with this girl. So what do you do? What do I ask her? What do I say? And so I, I just said, okay, I got, a, I got a question. Sarah, um, yeah, so where, where are you from? And she's like, oh, um, I'm from Weaverville. I'm like, cool, Weaverville. I had no idea where that was. So I'm like, um, is that south of here? She's like, no, that's, that's north of here. Okay, um, shoot, <laughs> strike one, right? Man, I can't believe I didn't know where Weaverville was. So then, um, you know, we begin a conversation, and in that conversation... We hit kind of like this bump, you know, because we're in the water. Well, that bump apparently pushed me in the right spot where I farted, and it was really loud to me, like really loud. I feel the blood rushing up my head. I feel the embarrassment coming. And I look over at Sarah, and I realize something very critical. She didn't hear it. And the wind's blowing so stinking hard, (laughs) she probably won't smell it either. So... I guess that's kind of how I met this really cute girl named Sarah. And in fact, as, uh, as the story continued at sailing camp, we really hit it off. It turned into a camp romance, I guess you could say. Uh, we were holding hands and we were walking Pier 39 together. Something really hit me in this, uh, in this week with Sarah. And the one thing that hit me was love. I had never experienced a, a, a welling up in my heart of love towards somebody like I did this girl. 
and it felt weird. It felt strange. It felt powerful. And I sure as heck didn't know what to do with it because remember, I'm in the middle of this season of rebelling, but I'm kind of moving back towards Jesus. My mom mom and dad and split up, but they're really kind of talking about reconciling. I'm still mad at my dad for him leaving in the first place. Um, lots of turmoil. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And then I meet this girl and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so camp ends and we're, you know, we get off the boat, we unload, we get in the van, we're driving back towards Sacramento and Sarah actually had to leave early. She was going to go hang out with her family and she starts crying. You know, I'm a boy, so I don't cry. At least that's what I used to think. And so we like exchanged addresses and phone numbers because this is a time before you sent emails. And um, it was terrible. It was like this tearing apart of this beautiful thing. And it just ended in that moment. And uh, so we just started writing letters to each other afterwards. And it didn't take too long for Sarah to decide that I was definitely not cool enough to date her. And the reason is, I didn't know this at the time, but the reason is I played bagpipes, right? Those darn bagpipes. Her cousin convinced her bagpipes aren't cool. Sarah said, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. I didn't know the bagpipes were not cool. I cannot date this guy because he plays bagpipes. And so I was out of the picture. She wrote me the Dear John letter. I got the breakup letter. I was devastated. And yet, even though I was devastated, we would still kind of communicate a little bit. We would always kind of hang on to that. And in the in the in-between... Three years go by before we meet up again. But in those three years, this thing happens. Uh, it's Sarah's senior year of high school. She sends me her senior pictures, and this is, I'm fast forwarding a couple years. And uh, she's really still cute. And so I keep these pictures in, our, in my wallet because, again, we don't have smartphones, we have wallets. And so we keep pictures of people that we care about in our wallets. And um, this one day, I was, again, working as a youth group uh, leader when, in a different church at this point. We, we had went, we were in a Nazarene church in downtown Sacramento, and then we actually connected with a Wesleyan church that was more in our neighborhood. And um, the youth leader that I was working with at the point uh, opens up my wallet. I don't know why he opens up my wallet. And he looks in it and he sees this picture of this beautiful girl. And he says, what, what does she want with you? And I looked at him and I said, one of these days, I'm going to marry that girl. He laughs. And that's where I'm going to end today. I'm going to end on that. And I just want to thank you for hearing this story. And in episode two, I'm going to be sharing the story about Sarah and me. I'll see you soon. Thanks for joining in today, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a comment if you enjoyed this episode. You can check out our ministry at heritagecoffeehouse.org. And remember, we all play a vital role in God's plan for redemption. So what's the Father saying to you, and what are you going to do about it?